Holy God, we we come before you this morning with thankfulness. Father, as we listen to one another pray this morning, prayers of thanksgiving. Father, our hearts rejoice together that we can be thankful that you have demonstrated your love to us through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, that one thought, that one truth is enough for us to stand here and worship forever. Indeed, it's what we'll do when we see you face to face as we just sang. Father, we long to see you face to face, but Father, we know that it's for your purposes that we remain here. To proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection that we have come to know personally as believers. Father, we do pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us. Father, we we need you. We're so helpless. We're so weak. We're so feeble. We're so prone as... The song says, to wander. Yet you are faithful. Father, you keep us. According to your word, you sanctify us. And even greater still, we rest upon the promise that one day you will glorify us with yourself. Father, we cling to Christ. We cling to you. You're our only hope. Father, I do pray this morning as we continue to press through the book of Philippians that you will... Father, work in us the truths, the the deep-seated truths of those words. Father, that we won't just become knowledgeable of a book. But, Father, that we will become the product of what Paul intended the Philippians to be upon his writing of them. Work Christ in us. Father, make the gospel our, our single focus in this life. And Father, I pray that we we would be obedient to the word this morning, that you would grow in us a godly affection, a godly love for one another, for all the saints. Father, I pray for us especially right now, Father, Father, that we wouldn't exclude one of the saints from our love, but Father, that we would love all the brothers and sisters with the love of Christ. Father, we pray specifically this morning for Joel and Laura Minton. Father, we thank you for the, their visible love for you. Father, I thank you for the testimony of your grace that they represent. And Father, we pray that they would become more like Christ. Father, I pray that they would be renewed day by day. With love to you, Father. And Father, we pray that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Father, we thank you for Jedediah. Father, we pray that you would save him. That you would use him for your sake. And that Joel and Laura would happily give Jedediah to you for your own choosing. And Father, we pray for the baby in the womb. 
I thank Corey is to be her name. Father, we pray that even now she would be showered with your word, that she would grow up in a home that points her to Christ, and that she too would be saved and used for your glory. And Father, we pray this morning for Linda Moore. Father, we thank you for her. And Father, we pray that you would be gracious to her. Father, we pray that you would draw her to yourself. Father, we pray that you would give her wisdom and that you would cause her to trust in you in all things. Father, I pray that Christ would be preeminent in her life and that nothing else would have attraction or lure to her. And that Christ would be enough. And Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel come this morning, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, normally I don't have to make this announcement, but I've been the one that's producing the bulletins. And if you'll look on the notes page, it has last week's sermon title and uh, text and even the focus statement from last week. I forgot to change those. <laughs> so I apologize. The title, if you're interested in this kind of thing, for this week's sermon is Godly Affection for the Church. Godly Affection for the Church. And our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11. We won't be covering all four chapters. If you missed that last week, um, I think it may be online. I'm not sure, but you're, you're welcome to listen to that. This is the second of 11 sermons that we will be participating in through the book of Philippians. So we begin uh, this week dissecting sections and we begin at the beginning of the letter. So let's look at God's word together. Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Before we dive right into the heart of the text this morning, I believe it's both helpful and necessary for us to not flippantly bypass the introduction to this letter to the Philippians. In the first verse, Paul and Timothy 
bondservants of Christ Jesus, we find an interesting term that Paul uses to describe himself. A bondservant of Christ. What exactly is a a bondservant? In my opinion, the New American Standard gets the wording right here. Unlike other versions, King James, NIV, ESV, those are all good versions to study and to use to meditate on God's Word. But they don't get the full meaning here. They list the word servant. And I believe it leaves us short of the full meaning of the text. Bondservant is what we're intended to receive from Paul here. To be a bondservant means that you are owned by another and are subservient to a master. Not just a servant, but one who is owned. See, anybody can serve willingly. To be a servant is one thing. To be a bondservant is completely other. Paul was not a free person. But he considered himself as belonging to Christ. I'm not referring to his physical imprisonment here. Paul literally viewed himself as imprisoned to Christ, as a slave to Christ. This is an important introduction because it not only links Paul to the cause of Christ, but to the person of Christ as well. This kind of introduction, I believe, demonstrates in Paul the humility that he is aiming for the Philippians to also behold. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. But I want you to see not only those who were pinning the letter, but to whom the letter was to be received by. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. I want you to see the very careful language of Paul to the recipients of this letter. He says, to all the saints. That word all is very important. Not one saint is excluded. Not even the most difficult to love saint is excluded in Paul's letter. It says all. The word all is important for two reasons. Because it is to be applied to everyone in the church. And it applies to everyone in the church. Now here's what I mean by that. If I'm writing a letter to someone or to a church and I say to all the saints, it applies to all of them. I'm saying this is for all of you, right? But it also applies to all of you to one another. All, all of you. All of the saints. And then we find an interesting phrase that Paul omits in all his other letters. He says this. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, I just want to make a quick note here and just say a few things. At first, this seems maybe odd, maybe an odd addition to the recipients of the letter. Because in no other letter does Paul include this kind of introduction where he singles out certain groups of people like this. However, I do think there are a couple of things that we can glean from such an introduction. First, this inclusion of overseers and deacons as recipients of the letter does point to particular offices in the life of the church. So because of Paul's letter, we know that there is such thing as overseers or deacons. Overseers... Sometimes we see also translated in the New Testament as pastors or elders or even bishops. And deacons have been 
at least in the church in Philippi that we can see studying this letter, they've been appointed in the life of this church. So we know the Philippians had overseers and we know that the Philippians had deacons. But I also want you to see the preposition preposition that's there, including the overseers and deacons that precedes the titles. It is obvious that they were to be included with the church, communicating a together with or an alongside the rest of the believers, not over and above or especially outside of the church. So Paul always chooses his wording very clearly. Next thing that I want you to see right here in the introduction is a familiar phrase that pops up in several of Paul's letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just make a a quick plea with you. And I'm I'll be the first to say that I don't always greet everyone in this manner and it can become rigid or um, plastic if we if we do it in a in a in a fake sense. But I really appreciate the wall, the way that Paul greets the believers in Christ. He says grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So my plea is let's let's be mindful of even how we greet one another. Let even our greetings be um, different than the way that the world greets one another. And the last note that I want to make in the introduction before we dive into the heart of the text. Is this. Actually, I, I, I want to make a couple of more notes. One. Paul says a phrase. At the beginning or excuse me, in verse three says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, the reason I want to draw your attention to that is because the wording that's here in the New American Standard, and you'll see it also repeated in probably your version of Scripture too, it says, in all my remembrance of you. That wording is debated among scholars, and I'll tell you why I land on which side of the fence that I land on. The alternative wording would be, I thank my God, in all your remembrance of me. Every major, every major version of Scripture, including the one we're looking at today, the New American Standard, renders it, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. However, multiple respected scholars render the wording as, I thank my God in all your remembrance of me. And the primary motive for this different rendering is found in the end of the letter when Paul again rejoices in the church in Philippi for its gift to him. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. For indeed you were concerned before. But you lacked opportunity. And so Paul's in the end of the letters. Demonstrating a thankfulness for the Philippians toward him. And again later in chapter 4 verse 16. He says for he's talking to the Philippians. He says for even when I was in Thessalonica. You sent a gift more than once for my needs. So it's clear that Paul is appreciative especially if you read through the whole book carefully paul is very appreciative he's thankful of the philippians love for him and that they've remembered him that he's in ministry and that he's in need and they've sent this gift so for someone to debate that the rendering of verse three should be i thank my god and all my excuse me and all your remembrance of me is not far-fetched as a matter of fact i think either way that you render it 
it's going to be faithful in one extent to the book as a whole. Because the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, as we talked about last week, is a letter of friendship. It's Paul's love to the Philippians and the Philippians' love to Paul. And so, depending on whatever camp you may fall in, whatever side of the fence you may fall on, when you look at the book as a whole, I don't think it's unfaithful. And while surely this could be the true rendering, I think there's ample evidence in this letter that it's written from, with thankfulness from Paul to the church for their remembering of him. But the majority of the evidence leans with Paul being glad-hearted of his remembrance of them. The text that immediately follows verse 3, which we'll look at more closely at this morning, all points to Paul's thoughts of them. So, siding with the major translations and the proximity of this statement to its surrounding text, we'll read the verse as it's written in the New American Standard. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. The last note that I want us to make before we dive into the text is to be very clear that as we press on through the rest of the text this morning, from verses 4 through 11, that we keep verse 3 in mind. Paul says in his letter as he's communicating to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, I want us to see the launching pad for the remainder of our text this morning is Paul's thankfulness to God. He's not just thankful for the Philippians. He's thankful to God for the Philippians. There's a distinction between the two. To say thank you to somebody is one thing. To say I thank my God for you is a completely other. And I believe it's the launching pad for the rest of the text this morning. Everything that Paul's about to mention concerning his love for all the saints of Philippi is launched out of his thankfulness to God. Paul is genuinely thankful to God for God's work in the Philippians. He is giving God thanks for the evidence of the spiritual substance, excuse me, substance that he can identify in them. So let's turn our attention now to God's word to see this godly affection that Paul has for this group of believers, this local church that Paul loves so much. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is why we entitled the sermon what we did, Godly Affection for the Church. Listen to the rest of the text. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, Now, continue to listen to Paul's affection for the church. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there are three specific things that I want us to see this morning concerning godly affection for the church. This example that Paul sets of his godly affection for the church in Philippi Clearly, we can apply to ourselves today in our affection for the church. There's three things that I want us to see. The example of godly affection that we find in Philippians chapter 1. 
Number two, what the substance of godly affection is. And number three, the evidence of godly affection. So let's begin by looking at the example of godly affection for the church. All we have to do is look at the language of Paul to see what true godly affection looks like. I tried to read through the text again just a minute ago so that you could hear that. But listen to Paul in Philippians. I'm just going to read phrases now. He says, I thank my God for you. That's affectionate. And all my remembrance of you. That means Paul's thinking of them. That's affectionate. Praying with joy for you all. That's affectionate. In view of your participation in the gospel. He's Paul's affectionate toward them because they are participating with him in the gospel. Confident that God will perfect you. This is how I feel about you is what Paul says. Verse 7. I have you in my heart. That's affection. You are all partakers of grace with me. There's that participating, that partaking with that Paul delights in. And then he says in verse 8, probably most clearly, I long for you all. That's affectionate language. I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This love language continues throughout the book as we as we saw last week. For time's sake this morning, uh, let's just look at a few more examples in in Philippians to just further hammer home this point that Paul's language toward the Philippians is one of affection. In chapter one, verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's looking forward to continuing life here on earth. Because why? He desires to see their progress and joy in the faith. Philippians chapter two, verse 19, Paul's contemplating sending Timothy to to Philippi to minister to them. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, meaning Paul's concerned about their condition. He cares for them. And then in chapter four, probably the most blatant and clear language that Paul uses to demonstrate his love for the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The genuine love that Paul feels for them is unmistakable. But Paul is not simply thankful for them, but thankful for God in them. He's pointing out in them Christ's likeness. What Paul loves most about them is not their winsome personalities, but Christ in them. That's what Paul's attracted to. That's what Paul delights in. That's what he's affectionate about. Paul delighted to see Christ at work in them and therefore desired that they have more of Christ. Paul loved the Philippians because they had Christ in them. And what Paul wanted for the Philippians was more of Christ in them. That's what bleeds through in his letter. But there's more. Listen closely to what Paul says. In verse eight. Really try to digest this verse. We we talked about it for just a minute last week, but let's really try to digest this. This verse this morning. For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul did not love them on the extent of his own love. But rather he loves them with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's been many of people on earth enter into relationships and give it their all. To love somebody the best they know how and fall flat on their face and fail. 
We're not talking about human love here that can be conjured up in a man or woman's heart for another. As strong as that may be, it's blemished. It's not perfect. But Paul says he loves them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And we know that God's love for us, according to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, never fails. If we are a member with Paul's love for the saints in Philippi, however, I think we're still missing the true mark. Paul himself points to the love of Christ as the mark with which we are to love one another. So if we are to love, like Paul says, with the affection of Christ Jesus, then even Paul himself would admit that his love is shorthanded. It's not sufficient. He says, I long for you. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, meaning I love you the way Christ loves you. And if I'm going to love you properly, appropriately, rightly, then I must love you the way Christ loves you. So what Paul was doing is he was pointing to Christ. So let's take a look this morning at the love that Christ demonstrates toward his saints. If we want to know what Paul means when he says, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus, we must look at Christ and his love. Christ's love for the saints was marked by humility. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints in his condescension? Think about that. Christ, Jesus, condescends from heaven to earth, takes on the form of man, feeble, weak man, and became a servant to those men. That's Christ's love. Marked by humility. Christ's love for the saints was full of compassion. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints? Throughout the life of his ministry, as he heals the sick, he looks, on, he looks upon them with compassion. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints when he weeps for their condition? More than once in Scripture, we see Christ lamenting, weeping for the condition of of the people that he sees. Do you see Jesus love when he preaches the gospel of himself to those who are without a true shepherd? Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 says, Jesus seeing the people felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see Jesus love for the saints as he intercedes for us in John 17? Christ's love for the saints included his own suffering. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he sweats teardrops of blood in anguish so that God the Father would strengthen him to endure the cross so that our sins' price may be paid. Do you see the love for the saints? That God demonstrates to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, when He's betrayed. When Jesus is betrayed by Judas, one of His own disciples. Do you see His love for us? Do you see Jesus' love for the saints when 
Peter denies him, his closest friend on earth, three times. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints when he is beaten and mocked? Do you see Jesus' love for the saints when he cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ's love for the saints required Jesus' death. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints in his obedience? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints when he is crucified at Calvary? Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, or Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Hebrews 9, 22. And according to the law, one may <clears throat> almost say all things are cleansed with blood. But without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ's love for the saints is eternal. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints in His resurrection? For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. John 13, 1. It was before the feast of the Passover. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, says this about, it says this about Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally translated, eternally. Because Jesus is eternal, his love for the saints is eternal. Do you see Jesus' love for the saints through his intercessory prayer for us? The fact that Christ would even be the subject of love toward us, the object of his affections, is simply amazing. The example of Christ's love for us is the real aim of Paul. So when Paul says, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These are the things that are running through Paul's mind. This is what he's communicating to the Philippians. He's preaching the gospel to him in a simple statement to say, I love you the way Christ loved you. And the way Christ loved you is what we just read. God is Paul's witness. That it is with the same affection that Christ had for the saints that Paul too loved the church in Philippi. That is a very weighty statement. Christ is the example of godly affection toward the believers. The second thing that I want you to see is not just the example that Paul sets for us and that he points to in Christ for us, but I also want you to see the substance of godly affection. I want you to see the substance of the Philippian saints in which Paul so delighted. Yes, he loved the Philippians. But what he really loved, as we mentioned earlier, is Christ in them. He loved to see God at work among them. He loved to see the Philippians in love with Christ. And that was the substance of what Paul's affections were. Paul's affections were set on just, excuse me, not just on anyone in the city of Philippi, but as the letter indicates, the saints 
in Christ Jesus. Those who have been set apart for Christ, by Christ, to Christ. I want you to see the substance of of Paul's that Paul identifies in the saints that leads to his affection for the church in Philippi. So what is it that Paul sees in them, this substance? Let's look at verses 5 through 7. In view of your participation, he says, I'm thankful for God. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. I want us to see this morning, as we look at the substance of Paul's affection, that he identifies in the Philippians three things that causes Paul to have great affection for them. Now, normally I don't do this, but this morning it's uh, it'll be alliterated for us. Just worked out that way naturally in the text. I didn't have to force it. So let's get the three P's of substance of godly affection. Number one was their participating in the gospel. What Paul loved about the Philippians was they were participating in the gospel. As we discussed last week, Christ and the gospel of Christ were Paul's single passion. They were one and the same. If you get Christ, you get the gospel of Christ. The two go hand in hand. If you love Christ, you're about the gospel of Christ. It was one thing for Paul. It was his single passion. And therefore, he set his love on those who shared that passion. Because of their partnership in the gospel, Paul had a deep affection for the saints in Philippi. Paul loved preaching Christ. And he loved that Christ was being preached in Philippi. Paul wanted the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it says later in the letter. Dear friend, this morning, are you praying this for those fellow believers whose lives do not always exemplify Christ's likeness? Are you praying that they will be participating in the gospel with you? Are you participating in the gospel so that others have a natural godly affection for you? See, the way that you love your brothers and sisters is you participate in the gospel with them. If you're not participating, it's hard to love you as a saint. And if you want to love other believers, invite them in. The proclamation and sharing of the gospel with you. You want to grow in your love for another brother or sister? Go prayer walking together. Share the gospel together. You'll grow in your love for that brother or sister. If what we do is identify faults in others, are we praying for our own compassion toward them or for their spiritual growth to grow in a manner worthy of the gospel? Or when we identify faults in one another, do we gossip about their faults to others? Or are we prideful and measure ourselves against their faults? See, as I look across this room, it's not hard for me to see faults in some of you, just like it's not hard for you if you knew me well to see faults in me. We see faults in one another. Let's be honest. We're we're flawed. I see character flaws in others. But what is it that we do with those character flaws? What is it 
that we do when we identify those faults? Are we communicating to other believers? Well, they're just, they're kind of weak in this and this is what they do. That's gossip. Or do we, when we see their faults, look at them and then measure ourselves according to that and feel better about ourselves? That's pride. What we ought to do when we identify faults, see character flaws in one another, is pray for one another. Pray that God would grow us up in spiritual maturity. Grace Church, we should rejoice in one another. We should rejoice in one another. We should rejoice in Christ in one another. Rejoice in our participation in the gospel with one another. We can have godly affection for those participating in the gospel. Because God's word teaches that that's what that that is what happens when we participate in the gospel together. We grow in love for one another. And when we drop the ball on that, disunity can arise. Those churches that are most unified are those churches that are proclaiming the gospel most together. The second P that I want us to see that Paul identified the substance that he sees in the church of Philippi is this. He saw the perfecting work of God in them. He says in verse six, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident, not in the Philippians consecrating of themselves to God, but God's sanctifying work of the Philippians. God perfects. God sanctifies, God makes holy those he calls to himself. And Paul identified that. Paul knew that God had drawn to himself, had brought into the fold those who made up the church in Philippi, those saints that he identifies in his letter. And he knew that God was perfecting them. Paul was confident of God's promise to to sanctify the saints. God always finishes the good work he begins. He is the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, right? So if God begins the work in you, he will complete the work in you according to his word. And we always hold God to his word. He will perfect us. Will perfect is a promise. He will perfect. Jesus praised this for us in John 17. Why wouldn't we believe that it's true? Jesus says, sanctify them. In the truth. If Jesus prayed that for us. Do you think God the Father is not going to answer. God the Son's prayer. Of course he is. And Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified. Therefore we will be sanctified. And Paul saw this in the church of Philippi. These are true believers. And therefore if they're true believers. They must be being sanctified. Paul saw the perfecting work of God. In the saints in Philippi. The substance of Paul's love for the saints in Philippi was God's perfecting work. His sanctification of their saved lives. The third P that I want us to see is that they were partakers of grace. They were participators in the gospel. He saw the perfecting work of God and that they were partakers of grace. Verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Paul says it is only right. 
it's only good. It's only appropriate that I feel this way about you. It's right for me to feel this way about you in my heart. See, Paul has this feeling. It's it's an emotion, right? It's grounded in Scripture. He's not emotional, but he has this right emotion for them, this right love. It's appropriate to feel this way. To feel what way? To feel full of godly affection for them. Well, why is it right then? What makes it right for Paul to feel this way about them? Because he sees Christ in them. Because he knows that God loves them. Because they are walking with him. Because they suffer as he suffers. Because they stand with him. Because they believe the same gospel. Because they proclaim the same gospel. Because they are co-laborers in the gospel with Paul. Because they were saved by the same grace that Paul was saved. They were partakers of grace with Paul. It is right for us to have this deep affection for one another. So deep that our feelings, our our senses, our, our inner yearnings are stirred for one another. Based on the reality that Christ is in each of us. I can say with clear conscience. To every single member at Grace Church. And I pray that you can say the same. I have a deeper affection for you. Than I do blood family members who aren't in Christ. Because Christ is in you. Because Christ is in you. We are all united with Christ together. We all have the blessed privilege of communing with God in Christ. We all have partaken of the grace of God. We all labor together for the proclamation of the gospel. For the confirmation of the gospel, for the defense of the gospel is what Paul says to the Philippians. There is substance in having affection for those who are also partakers of grace in God. So there's substance that Paul sees in them. And if substance is what Paul identified in the Philippians or what we identify in others as the mark that our affection should be poured out upon them then what is the evidence that we are genuinely loving others as we should? If we can identify in others what it is that should cause us to love them, that they are participating in the gospel, that they are being perfected by God, that they are partakers of grace. If we can identify that in others and know that we are to love them with the love of Christ, then what's the evidence that we're doing so? Where's the evidence that we're loving people as we should? Let's look at the rest of the text. Beginning in verse 9. This is the evidence of godly affection. And this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more. In real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Which comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. Prayer is the outworking. The result. The action. The practical response of the inward affection in Paul's heart. This prayer that we are about to observe. That we're, we're going to look at more closely together. Is the overflow of affection that Paul has for Christ in the Philippians. See all Paul's doing. It's really simple in one sense. And maybe not so easy in another. All Paul is doing is. He's looking at the Philippians. The church there in Philippi. And he's looking for Christ in them. And when he sees evidence that Christ is in them, 
He latches onto it and he loves them for it. It's simple in that sense. In the other sense, it becomes difficult sometimes because our own flesh gets in the way. And we hinder our ability to see Christ in others. And so Paul prays this prayer. This is evidence that Paul really loved the church in Philippi. This is evidence that he had godly affection for them. I love the way A.W. Pink says it. He says two things that I want you to hear. He says, the prayers of holy men are usually the choicest expressions of their souls. You want to know how somebody really feels? Listen to them pray. Listen to them pray. You really want to know how you feel about God, about Christ, how you feel about other believers? Look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Your prayer life is a direct representation of your love toward God, Christ, and others. The evidence that we have true godly affection for all the saints in Christ Jesus is our prayer to God for them. Listen to this other quote by A.W. Pink, and then I won't bombard you with any more pink. He says, The measure of our love for others can largely be determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them. The measure of our love for others can largely be determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them. The evidence of godly affection toward the believers is prayer. Prayer for, I think we can break it down into parts here. Prayer for increased love. Because he says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, right? He's praying that their love would increase, that your love may abound Still more and more. It sounds like increased love to me. Now I want us to consider carefully the words that we see in verse 9. That your love may abound still more and more. It's obvious that the Philippians have a love for Christ. And the gospel and even a love for Paul. Yet, here we have Paul praying that their love would abound still more and more. What Paul is communicating is not that they lacked love. But that what love they had would increase in an informed way. Here's what he says. That your love may abound still more and more. Now listen to the rest of the phrase. In real knowledge and all discernment. He's praying for increased love, but he's also praying for real knowledge. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. Their love needed to be assisted with real knowledge. So often, especially among young believers... There's a misguided love that can be impulsive. Sometimes even reckless rather than scripturally regulated or tempered with God's word. The church in Corinth was the opposite of what I think Paul's writing to here in in Philippi. See what Paul's asking, what he's praying for the church in Philippi is this. You have love, but I'm praying that it would abound still more and more in real knowledge that you would attach to that love that you have for God and for me. Real knowledge, a deeper understanding of who God is. Well, the church in Corinth, I believe, was the opposite of that. If we flipped over to 1 Corinthians 1, five, you don't have to. I'll read the verse to you. It says that in everything, this is his prayer for the, the church, the introduction of his letter to the Corinth. You were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, meaning they were they were very, uh, very knowledgeable of God. Paul goes on to deal with the wisdom of man in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You may be familiar with that chapter. And that theme continues. It kind of 
carries through the entire first letter to the Corinthians into chapter 13, a chapter we know well, where Paul says this to the church in Corinth. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, there's that word knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So we have two different things that I think are potentially dangerous. Love without knowledge or knowledge without love. The church in Corinth had knowledge without love. Paul said, you're nothing if that's the case. And I think he's communicating the same thing to the church in Philippi, but the opposite. He's saying, I see your love, but it needs to be accompanied with knowledge. That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge without love is sinful and dangerous. And conversely, love without knowledge is likewise sinful and dangerous. Notice God's words say real knowledge. Every word matters in Scripture. Real knowledge, not just knowledge, but real knowledge. Real knowledge that's rooted in the Scriptures, rooted in knowing God. Not knowledge that puffs up. I don't care about your theology so much. If it's just your theology... If it doesn't lead to worship of God, if it doesn't lead toward compassion toward others, then it's just knowledge. It's not real knowledge. It's knowledge without love. It appears that the church in Philippi was closer to the former. That they had love, but lacked knowledge. Therefore, Paul prays that their love would abound in real knowledge. Unbelievers can have mere sentiment toward things. Anybody can love things, but Christ-like love must be accompanied with knowledge. Let me say a word to us here at Grace, because I believe that so many of us at Grace may lean toward having knowledge without love. Oh, that we would grow in godly affection and true love. We have some bright minds at this church, to say the least. And I'm thankful for that. Therefore, I think we should be praying for one another that we would excel in love or that we would abound in love still more and more. We also see in Paul's prayer, not just a prayer for increased love or prayer for real knowledge, but prayer for all discernment. I think he's just building and building and building here. But Paul prays for more than knowledge. He prays for discernment. You can see the importance of the three combined together. Love, knowledge, and discernment. With knowledge, we have just principles. But no discernment to apply them. But if we have a spirit of discretion to accompany our knowledge, then we can love people as Christ loved them, counseling them with truth and compassion. It is my sincere prayer that our love and knowledge keep pace with one another. That they would be ever increasing in us here at Grace Church. See, the key is not to have more knowledge than love or more love than knowledge, but that they would keep pace, that they would run parallel, that they would run side by side. So that's what I'm praying. I believe that's what Paul was praying for the church in Philippi, that their love would run parallel with knowledge and discernment. What happens if this prayer is answered? I think that's what the rest of the text is 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 getting at this. We see what Paul's prayer is, that our love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. But then he tells us if God answers his prayer, this is what happens. This is what happens. Listen to the rest of the text. And this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more 
in real knowledge and all discernment. So that the reason I'm praying this is because if God answers this, this is what happens. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Paul gives us insight to such answered prayer in the verses that follow. The following verses is the outcome of answered prayer in verse 9. If God really answers the prayer that Paul prays in verse 9, and guess what? It's in Scripture. Therefore, it's an example for us to pray, which means God wants us to pray this, which means He will answer it. Are you following me? The reason Paul prayed that our love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment was so that we may approve the things that are excellent and that we might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Meaning that we would hold fast to Christ until the end. And the proof of which is endorsing the things of God and conducting ourselves with sincerity and without blame. Are you delighting in the things of God that you may approve the things that are excellent? How do you approve the things that are excellent? Well, you have to know what excellent things are. Excellent things are things that pertain to Christ. Excellent is Christ. Excellent things are things pertaining to Christ. God's desire is that we would be sincere and blameless. What's he mean by that? Sincere. Somebody who's pure. They're single-minded. They're not hypocritical. They're genuine. And blameless. To not be blamed for something. To... Not stumbling or causing others to stumble. Not being offensive to others. So if we put all those things together. That we should approve things pertaining to Christ. That we should be pure and single minded. Not hypocritical. And that we should not cause others to stumble. And not be offensive to others. If this is what the outcome of the prayer is. Then what is Paul's aim? What is his desire for us? You see how this prayer is advantageous for the gospel? What Paul is basically praying is that we would not get in the way of the gospel through our own pride and selfishness. He wants them to grow in love for one another and in real knowledge and discernment so they can approve the things that are excellent. What are the things that are excellent? Jesus Christ, the gospel. To approve the gospel. And he wants them to be sincere and blameless. That means that their life would not hinder the furtherance of the gospel. That's what Paul wants. Paul wants Christ in them to be clear. For others to clearly see Christ in them. That they wouldn't get in the way of that. With their own pride and selfishness. Which we know existed because Paul has to address it in the book. And the phrase ends, until the day of Christ. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. There is no end. To reflecting Christ to those around us, to being that pure vessel for the light of Christ to shine. There's no end to that in this life or until Christ returns. Either we die or Christ returns. But until then, we should be the light of Christ to those around us. It's what Paul desired. It was his heart. And he says this in verse 11. 
having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness, it is that which flows forth from already being made righteous in Christ. We have to be made righteous in Christ for the fruit of righteousness to come from us, right? The only way to have the fruit of something is if you have that something itself. The only way you can have the fruit of righteousness is if you have righteousness. And the only way you can have righteousness is if Christ imputes it to you. Sounds like we're dependent to me upon Christ imputing his righteousness to us. For the fruit of righteousness to come from us. Fruits of righteousness can only come from the righteousness of Christ. And we're dependent on Christ for that. It comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness can only be produced through Christ's death and resurrection. We have to put our faith in Christ's death and resurrection for the righteousness of Christ to shine in us. These fruits of righteousness are the visible evidence that God is making us holy, that he has justified us and that he is making us holy. That's what the fruit of righteousness is. It's the evidence of God's salvation for us. This holiness is what distinguishes that which is of God from that which is not. The fruits of righteousness are how anybody who would know us and a non-believer could look at us and say there's something different about them and the non-believer. They might not call it the fruits of righteousness, but they ought to distinguish between us and a non-believer a holiness, the holiness of God that we can't earn for ourselves, but that God must give to us. And the chief end of all this is for the glory and praise of God. Listen with me again as we look at the entire text together in one reading and then we'll we'll be done this morning. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would you would work in us this godly affection, Father, that you would apply this, apply this godly affection in us toward one another. Father, I pray that this morning we would not delay in showing one another this godly affection that we see Paul exemplifying as he points to Christ's love for the saints. Father, I pray that you would warm our own affections for you, you who loved us first. Father, cause us to love you as we should. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to see the love of Christ for us. And that we would revel in that, that we would take great delight in that. And Father, we pray that you would work in us godly affection for all the saints. Father, not let us, Father, I pray that you would not let us sin against you by picking and choosing who we love among the believers, but that you would work in us love for all the saints. And Father, I pray this morning for Christ-like compassion in our souls, that we would love the way Christ loved, that we would have, as Paul said, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, that we would have the the affection of Christ Jesus toward others in us. And Father, we pray that our love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That our love and knowledge and discernment would be spiritually proportionate. And Father, we pray that you would help us to demonstrate both visibly and tangibly love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not good enough for us to say in our minds, Father, that we love them. But Father, I pray that we would demonstrate love toward one another. Father, I pray this morning that we would be reconciled if any offenses have taken place. If there's any offense toward any other brother and sister in this room, Father, I pray that we would be reconciled. And Father, I pray that we would be praying for one another. That we would be praying this prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians for one another. We ask all these things.